that's why I'm so excited about robotics because it's like we are inventing ourselves, right? It is in many ways a quest to understand us and our intelligence. And it's so hard to put down onto paper how we detect like a cup or how we are doing these things or how we are planning tasks. Like, you know how software engineers say the best way to learn something is to build it. And I think robotics is basically our quest to understand ourselves and build more of ourselves. Hello, and welcome to The Cognitive Revolution, where we interview visionary researchers, entrepreneurs, and builders working on the frontier of artificial intelligence. Each week, we'll explore their revolutionary ideas, and together, we'll build a picture of how AI technology will transform work, life, and society in the coming years. I'm Nathan LeBenz, joined by my co-host, Eric Torenberg. Omniki uses generative AI to enable you to launch hundreds of thousands of ad iterations that actually work, customized across all platforms with a click of a button. I believe in Omniki so much that I invested in it, and I recommend you use it too. Use Cogrev to get a 10% discount. Kirthana Gopalakrishnan, mother of robots, is a robotics and machine learning engineer conducting advanced robotics research at Google AI, where she's been an author on several of the most influential papers of the last year, including SACAN, which demonstrated that language models can effectively act as the executive planning function, or brain, of a robotic system, capable of understanding and carrying out, quote, long horizon, abstract, natural language instructions, unquote, by assessing situations, decomposing problems into parts, and issuing logical next step commands for their robot bodies to execute. And also Robotics Transformer, or RT1, which demonstrated that the same large-scale pre-training paradigm, which has recently delivered so many breakthroughs in so many domains, can also work for robotics. RT1 ultimately delivered a 97% success rate on some 700 different tasks. It's a truism in Silicon Valley startup culture that it's easier to manipulate and control bits than it is to control atoms. And some have argued that the impact of AI will be limited to digital domains as a result. To me, Kirthana's work strongly suggests that this outlook is wrong. Google's most recent release, Palm E, as well as OpenAI's GPT-4, show that computer vision is still improving rapidly. And at this point, the combination of visual and language understanding seem quite clearly rich enough to support general purpose robots, suggesting that relatively few major conceptual problems, including more general robotic control, which Kirthana suggests we will likely achieve by teaching robots to learn from watching humans, still remain to be solved. Barring an unexpected slowdown, my takeaway from this conversation is that we should expect many form factors of robots that can see, communicate with us in natural language, and solve basic problems on their own, all in just the next couple of years. At that point, the race to engineer and scale the production of all sorts of robots will be on, and shortly after, we'll begin to encounter them in factories, offices, businesses, and even homes. I enjoyed this conversation with Kirthana tremendously. She is technically deep, and we get into the weeds. But she's also extremely thoughtful about how her work will affect the future, and I very much enjoyed her thoughts on the big picture as well. I hope you enjoy this conversation with Kirthana Gopal Akrishnan. 
Kirthana Gopalakrishnan, welcome to The Cognitive Revolution. Thank you. Really excited uh, to have this conversation, a lot to cover. You have one of the best Twitter bios that I've seen, Mother of Robots. And as soon as I saw that, I was like, all right, we've got to get Kirthana on the show and talk to her about everything that she's doing. You've had quite a tour de force over the last year and change as well in terms of having been an author on some of the biggest papers in robotics. And obviously you've worked with a, a, an outstanding team at uh, Google to, to create that work, but really looking forward to getting into the, some of the weeds on that. You recently gave a lecture for the ML Collective, which I have watched and, and definitely recommend. And one of the things that you said in that lecture that really caught my ear was that we're somewhere between GPT-2 and GPT-3 in the world of robotics. So I wanted to just start by asking, what does GPT-4 look like in robotics? Or zooming out even more broadly, how do you think we will integrate robots into our lives as they get smarter and more capable over the course of, say, the rest of the 2020s? I'm very excited because we are seeing the type of scale, uh, learning at scale in robotics, um, so which is similar to like GPT-3 for language. So like we are seeing emergent capabilities in reasoning and also in low-level control. Um, and the way that I see robots coming into our lives is Definitely, I think at Google, uh, at Robotics at Google, we have cracked this recipe of like transformers for control, language for interface, and then foundation models for like reasoning. Um, I feel like this recipe is fairly generalizable and extensible and has the potential to scale with data and with compute. So the way that I see robots coming into our lives is um, where humans interact with robots in natural language and the robots can do a lot of uh, instructions in the real world and they can think and plan in um, visual language space. So without being, you know, falsely precise in terms of like a, you know, specific date uh, for a prediction, does it seem realistic to you that we are headed for a time within the decade where we might have, for example, domestic service robots that can like do the dishes for me after dinner or, you know, pick up the toys after my kids and put them away when the kids don't do it. What is this going to like actually look like in, you know, homes or in places of business for people? Oh, absolutely. I do. In fact, the tasks that we train our robots that we publish on are in office environments um, and like picking things and cleaning and everything. In robotics, there is the problem of like, a lot of demos that you see are like fairly staged. If you, if you look at like robotics technology, there was like very traditional control, like PID control and like search algorithms and stuff. And then there was early deep learning, like end-to-end -end deep learning, but which was mostly like uh, con nets and everything. And now there is transformers in robotics. Um, and so we are, we are seeing like a curve and we are seeing that transformers are actually pretty good at doing a lot of tasks with one model, which is quite similar to how you are, right? Like you can cook, you can clean, you can like plan tasks, you can talk to your kids, um, like language generation. Uh, so I feel like to build a robot that's like very useful, that goes into uh, different people's houses, it's going to be very generalizable and it's going to be one model that's good at a lot of different things. And we are kind of seeing those trends already. Uh, the question is like, 
So we know it works in like multiple Google kitchens. RT1 can do a lot of tasks, but Google kitchens are still very similar and still a very small subset of the total number of kitchens that people can see in the world. So like, how do you scale fast enough that you can bring the generality and complexity of the real world into the models and where like you bring that to my house and then it doesn't suddenly break down. Yeah, it's a unbelievable convergence across kind of all the the things. You know, we've talked to guests who are in computer vision and who are, you know, just touching all these different modalities and the same story is kind of underlying the progress in all of them. So no surprise to learn on some level that that is also happening in robotics. I think one of the other things that you talked about in your in your lecture and you kind of, you know, alluded to there is just scale, you know, is is starting to happen in robotics as it has happened in other modalities. But the data doesn't naturally exist, right? That's like a huge difference between for language we have web scale data, you know, for we I, we just did an episode on generation of human like voices and obviously there's a ton of voices out there. I cloned my own voice. It, it took only 10 minutes of audio uh, because there was so much pre-training. But obviously that doesn't exist in robots or for robots because we don't have all the robots. They're not out there doing tasks in today's world and, and collecting data. So I was really interested. I, I kind of dug in a little bit to the RT1 paper and tried to get a sense for the work that you guys have done to assemble the data set you know, at, at least like beginning to approach the scale that is needed to power this. And I want to get uh, into that a little bit deeper because I think that's something that people probably have no real intuition for. And you have lived it, you know, and put hours into uh, helping to assemble that that data set. So maybe we could just like run down some stats and then get like very kind of practical in terms of, you know, what the data is and, and how you're going about collecting it. So you've got this is from the RT1 paper, 700 tasks, 130,000 episodes, which I take to be an attempt to complete a task. You can, you know, definitely correct or refine my understanding. Uh, multiple different robot form factors and a, a project that took a year and a half to complete. I guess for starters, can you like just describe the robots? There are a few videos out there that people can watch to also kind of go see them. What are these robots? What do they look like? How big are they? What do they like to be around? Tell us about the robots. Firstly, a lot of questions here. So let me go part by part. Uh, the robots are really cute uh, that we currently use. So they are mobile manipulators. They um, can drive and they have an arm with a gripper at the end. You can also like fit different tools, like they can do wiping and other things. Um, and they also have like self-charging and other capabilities on top of that. So they they are really, and I think like they're, they're a a pretty good and fairly stable stack and we have a fleet of them and we have been collecting data on them um and the the way the 130k episodes um uh, for use for rt1 are supervised learned so they are collected by a human uh teleoperating these robots to do different tasks and over the seven so they will attempt uh, all of these tasks and then we train on that using supervised learning so now that brings you a question about like data and language and vision and stuff so in language and vision as you said 
uh, there's a lot of free data available on the internet that you can just take and then use and then you're good to go. But in robotics, uh, uh, like, okay, there's reasoning and planning for which there is a lot of data because the it's similar to both humans and robots. But for actions specifically, there is not that much data. So that is one bottleneck in robotics. And it is also like a very engineering bottleneck. Like uh, it, very few people can collect and accumulate data sets of that scale which means that very few people very few, like robots are expensive um and you need a, a like a lot of engineering effort to um like orchestrate this large data farming operation so that already means that very few people can do robotics um and also uh, which is why like i feel like we at google who have the opportunity to do it are really uh we, we really have to we really have a unique position in scaling and making a dent in our attempt towards uh, solving robotics um so i'm very excited about that uh but also if if you look at language and uh, vision um uh, the acceleration in uh, uh deep learning was uh, was achieved by weekly supervised learning collecting data using robots can only scale linearly and only scale, especially with like human demonstrations, it can only scale with O of humans. Um, but we, we want to scale faster than that. Um, and so one way would be to get transfer from human manipulation data. For example, imagine how you would learn to surf or cook something. You would take a YouTube video and then you would watch it. And there are a lot of YouTube videos of humans doing a lot of things. Imagine that like one day you want to train like, let's say an NBA level basketball player, but who's a robot. You would not do like teleoperate robots to do NBA level basketball or do self-play. Maybe you'll do a little bit of reinforcement learning in specific uh, fine tuning on top, but you would make it watch all of the NBA videos that humans have been playing um, all these years, and then you would show and you would try to get the robot um, like scaled up to that point, and then collect a bunch of data to like exactly fit to the robot's embodiment. So transferring from human manipulation to robot. Uh, manipulation is a problem that we haven't yet solved yet, uh, which I think is going to be very important um, in uh, really solving robotics. So while humans cannot scale that fast, robots can actually scale. We can build like 50,000 robots. It, it's just a question of money. And then if robots can do autonomous collect, then that's going to scale faster than with supervised learning. So how, how can robots do autonomous collect? Um, so one is like using these foundation models to like collect data zero shot or with a little bit of fine tuning, uh, like something like Coda's policies. So let's build up those layers in a little bit more detail, starting with the supervised learning, like the, you know, the 130,000 episodes. So if I understand that correctly, you've got essentially a kitchen, which is a lab on the Google campus, and you've got robots that as of the time that you're collecting these episodes are not AI powered, they are instead remote control powered. So somebody sitting there with like a PlayStation controller going around and, you know, picking up napkins and whatnot with the robot. Um, is that actually like a reasonable picture of what's happening? Like a PlayStation controller type of interface? Yeah, we have like Oculus controllers for these robots. And then we have like multiple mock kitchens, um, which are like, they're called robot classrooms, like the robot goes to a classroom and learns some things. And then once they can reasonably do things in the classroom, then they are brought to like our actual kitchens to do like stuff. You know, I just did the most like naive math. I just divided 130,000 episodes by the number of work days in the year and a half that the project took. And I got 
367 episodes collected per day. So if I'm envisioning this right, it's like you must have, uh, I don't know, 20 people who like have been operating the robots and like doing the actual <laughs> VR to robot uh, housework and collecting all the data. And then I, I understand also that like the robot sensors, you know, sort of robot proprioception, I guess, if you will, is also being just recorded at like each timestamp along the way. And once all that is done, now you have kind of the, you know, reasonably big data set for supervised learning. So then your inputs would be the task or the command or the instruction plus the imagery that was seen at that given time, plus like state of the robot at that given time. And then the model is predicting next action. How many like data points does that translate into? Because it's each episode presumably has, I know you're running like multiple inferences per second. So do you have a sense for what that 130,000 episodes would translate into in terms of like example predictions, so to speak? Yeah, so uh, it depends on the median uh, task length, right? So, and it also depends on what tasks. For example, picking is something that is uh, fairly fast. And I think it's about like 30 steps. So you have 30 actions to pick uh, an object. And uh, like something like opening uh, doors is a longer episodes. So you, because you have to like approach the door, grab the handle, then open the door. So um, let's say if we put a median around like 40 or 50, let's say 50. Uh, 50 uh, steps per episode, then uh, each step has around uh, eight plus few, like let's say 11 tokens. So that's that's how many. And then you multiply that with the number of episodes. So it's like still way, way, way smaller compared to like language and uh, image data sets. So we, we need to scale both by autonomous collection as well as by like transferring. Okay, cool. So we've got the, the foundation of all this manually collected data. And now tell us kind of the, the outlook for the self-collection. So I'm, I'm kind of, you know, I do this with language models where I'll try to get it to do a task. You know, it sometimes does it, it sometimes can't. And then I basically siphon off the data that is good, that shows successes and like feed that back into my fine tuning. And, you know, I, I get better that way. Probably a lot of our listeners are familiar with that general kind of cycle. How does that, is that basically what you're doing also in robotics or what is the kind of, you know, robotics twist on that? So right now our system has like a high level and low level control. The high level control runs at like lower uh, frequency compared to the low level control is like much faster. Um, and the high level control, um, that paper is called SACAN, uh, where a language model is deciding how to plan, uh, like what task to do in sequence. So imagine something like uh, bring me a coffee so it'll be like, go to the kitchen, find a coffee cup, pick up a coffee cup, place it on the counter, counter and then go to the coffee machine, press a button. So like there's a series of steps to uh, of steps in natural language to do to achieve like a small task that you tell the robot to do, which is like, go get me like a Coke can from the fridge or something. Um, so there is a language model, which is like planning um, how to do the series of tasks. And then there is the robotics transformer, which is executing each of the smaller tasks. 
I'd love to just hear more examples of what the tasks are and, you know, maybe your overall kind of impression of where the robots are today in terms of like, are they practically helpful? Like if, if you had one at home, would you, would it be worth it, you know, to have one at home at this point, or is it still more trouble than it's worth? Like how, you know, how close are we to actually having something that would be useful in the wild? Um, so it's not in the wild yet, uh, and that's one thing that we are working towards. But the thing is, scaling from five to five hundred is quite hard. But scaling from five hundred to five thousand tasks is easier, and five thousand to fifty thousand is going to be also easier. Like the, each of them are t uh, like a different class of problems. Like towards the end, you come to like uh, more scaling and distribution and inference at scale problems. But initially, you are like you have algorithmic problems, and I feel like we sort of more or less have the algorithmic problems down. Um, so if uh, the, the the tasks in RT one are mostly like pick object, place knock pick, open cabinets, take things out of drawers and put them on counter, um, also open fridges and close, technically things that you can do in a kitchen. And we also tried in like various Google kitchens. So it's like, yeah, if you take it to a new Google kitchen and make it run there, I think it should uh, work. Um, but if you bring it to your house, I doubt it will work because the, all the images kind of look like it's very out of distribution. I I don't think it would generalize uh, that much, but Google Kitchens are still like somewhat similar. Things are at similar heights and stuff. So it should uh, sort of work. Uh, so then that is a question of like generalization, right? Um, and also like how many objects or how many scenarios can we generalize to? So the initial RT1, uh, we wanted to focus on skills. So we were like, we will do a lot of skills, but a few objects. So we only had like 17 objects. Now 17 objects are like too small, right? You have millions of objects in the real world. And in order to be realistic, you need to be manipulating millions of objects. So which was uh, our recent paper on like open vocabulary object manipulation. So the idea there is that, so imagine you have, you can do 17 objects. And then you collect a little bit of data on about 100 objects. So generalizing from 17 objects to any objects is quite hard. But generalizing from 100 something objects to any objects is slightly an easier problem. Um, so this was like, yeah, so what we did was use a visual language model uh, that can do a lot of zero shot detection, right? Like uh, right now, uh, language models can differentiate between your faces. Language models can say, hey, this is like a bottle or um, this is a phone just from a zero shot image. So can we use that information to go manipulate that object? And it sort of works reasonably well. So what are like the high end tasks? You kind of gave verbs, you know, of knock, lift, open, grasp, etc. And then you also kind of talked about the longer time horizon planning, which I imagine is still like pretty short. Like it sounds like the things are, you know, tasks that would be like 30 second tasks for a human. But like how far is that currently going? Could the robot, for example, like actually make and deliver a coffee with like actual hot coffee in it? So we don't let them handle hot objects um, yet. And they're also not good at operating machines yet. But that's something like, because we didn't, we just didn't collect data on it, but that's something fairly doable and that you can learn. They probably shouldn't be handling like hard coffee. I, I, I doubt that that's, that's probably like, I don't know, like imagine you're carrying a hard coffee and then there's like a kid nearby, like 
or like something happens and then you splash it that's not good or you just pour it over yourself and then you break your electronics so if you think about tasks in a kitchen let's say when you're cooking and stuff you only actually do a finite number of skills but you are able to combine them in uh, various fashions so if you do one let's say you have 100 skills so which is like let's say pick vegetable uh, cut vegetable wash them um uh, put them in plates like I don't know stir. So it's only finite number of skills. But then, um, let's say you have around a hundred skills now, and then you can then combine them in uh, various ways. So it would be like hundred CX, where X is the uh, number of tasks that you want to draw in order to do a high level sequence. So something like make an omelet. So that's like uh, I don't know, open the fridge, take an egg, break an egg. Even even with like a finite set of skills, you can still do a lot of tasks in, in the real world by combining them and a lot of like high level instructions. Um, we still have a lot of uh, skills to go. I think with RT1, the objective was how do we get an algorithm that shows like scaling limits? So if you look at the scaling plots in there, um, task diversity is very important. RT1 doesn't seem to saturate with the amount of data you throw in. And in fact, it actually seems to like get much and much better uh, with like emergence at like higher scales and higher diversity. And you can also increase the uh, size of the model um, a lot uh, to fit the data. If you imagine that you have to build like a very generic robot manipulator, you need data and you need uh, you need a data absorber. Um, so in our office, we call it like a sponge and a fire hose. So a sponge is like RT1 is a very good sponge. Uh, and we are also building like better sponges there, which is like, I don't know, like VLM, uh, like foundation model, uh, transformers right which can transfer also like internet scale generality into robot manipulation um so we, like visual language models as as manipulate like have you seen the palmy paper something like that um so now now imagine that you do have a data sponge that can that you can put a lot of data and then it just learns and then it does them in the real world now the question is how do you build a fire hose to like really pump it with like a lot of data? So that's uh, one one of my main projects at Google. So like how to scale autonomous, but like also how to like mine for a lot of data from the internet. Tell us more about that. I mean, the I, I'm understanding from your commentary that you it sounds like are kind of trying to base this on video of humans humans doing stuff, which this is always kind of an interesting pattern as well, where it's like. A lot of times the hardest part is figuring out how to cast the problem in such a way that you actually have or can create or can sort of, you know, uh, massage existing data into form where it can actually, you know, power the, the training paradigm that you want to power. So obviously there's a lot of data out there, you know, whether it's NBA basketball games or, uh, you know, how-to stuff of all kinds on YouTube. I guess a couple of questions that come to mind there. One is like, there's so many different possible forms of robots that, you know, kind of, if I was, if I was thinking about this naively, I would think, okay, you know, maybe I need, you know, does video work? Or maybe I need like a first person, like POV, you know, um, you know, GoPro type of view to, to make this work. Cause that might be a little bit more analogous, you know, I, boy, there's so many different possible forms of robot. Obviously you'd want this, foundation model to like be able to adapt to all kinds of different 
form factors or embodiments, you know, if you will. So I guess those are my two questions. Like in the sort of pre-training, do you think that like the third party point of view, you know, like the NBA basketball camera from the side view is going to be enough to kind of develop the conceptual, you know, semantic understanding that you need? Or is there going to be kind of a, a need for like more specialized uh, point of view type thing or something else? Um, and then second, is this kind of inevitably shaping up to be like a two-stage thing where there's sort of first like building the representations of what the humans are doing and then later like a bunch of adapters to specific, you know, forms? What am I getting right and what am I getting wrong is I guess there what that might look like. So some of the things you can actually transfer, right? Like, let's say I see my mom cooking an omelet and then from third person view, and then I can try to cook an omelet and I'm mostly successful. But if I see Kobe Bryant playing basketball and then I try to play at that level, I'm not going to be successful, even though I have a very good modeling of my own body. Um, so I think it's going to be similar like that. A lot of tasks, like whatever is easier, you can learn by like third person watching, but there still are uh, tasks that you can only do by uh, actually practicing and improving your own uh, control model. Uh, we, we have some good work uh, coming, like uh, I don't want to speak about it before it's published, um, on like transferring um, between human and robot d- data and also, um, yeah, training larger VLMs uh, for control. Just the one that came out this week, Palm E, um, was pretty amazing, kind of inherent in that. You know, the, the big project is the E stands for embodiment, right? So we're taking Google's kind of signature language model, which has been adapted to, you know, seemingly every (laughs) domain already. Um, I go on and on about MedPalm in other conversations, but this is Palm E. So kind of sitting it at the the center of this robot system and having it do the kind of reasoning and planning. Pretty, pretty amazing. Definitely picks up on another theme too, that we've talked about a few times, which is the the model to model communication, if I understand correctly with Palm E, the kind of auxiliary models are trained to inject embeddings into the language latent space directly without going through language itself, right? So there's this kind of really interesting connectivity that's starting to happen across these models. That's something that we also talked to the the blip authors about. And that's, you know, been a technique that they have used in their most recent paper as well. Translating these predictions to actual action in space and accomplishing stuff, um, you know, that's very particular to robotics, obviously. Can you kind of talk us through that half of the equation? I think the key to building like a foundation model would be data interoperability. And if you look at PAMI, it converts images into tokens, language into tokens, and actions into tokens. And once they are tokens, then like a transformer can like operate on all of them. And also, if you uh, really think about it, the foundations of like thought is similar in whether you are acting in language space or vision space or action space. and to get a globally optimal solution, you need to think in all of these spaces, right? Like if you are a person who's cooking or cleaning or walking your dog or your kid, uh, you are thinking in both in language, in uh, in vision, and also with like your body. Um, so any solution I, 
that would be like a globally optimal solution will be fully multimodal. And I think eventually it would be like one model to rule them all, to like does all the modalities together. Um, and specifically the way I think one of our T1's innovation is uh, tokenizing actions. Um, and at any given point of time, at least for the EDR robot, we have like 11 variables for um, one to terminate the episode or not and decide between arm and base control and uh, like around seven variables for arm control. And for arm, we are only doing basically where to put the end effector. Um, so end effector positions, end effector rotation and how much to close the gripper. So seven, vari three variables for position, three variables for rotation and one variable for gripper close. And then for base, um, X, Y and the angle. Um, so three, three variables for base, seven variables for the arm and one variable to decide uh, to control base or arm and then to also uh, terminate the episode. So one, once you like make your actions like tokens, then it's just like uh, like vision tokens or uh, language to uh, tokens, right? Like it's actually kind of like a, it's very radical. Uh, when VIT came out, people were like, oh, this is not going to work because like, how can you convert an image into language as like a sequence of tokens? Uh, like like language is a sequence of characters. But then it it, kind of, it works and it was able to bring us like large multimodal VLM models like Clip, even Stable Diffusion, uh, DALI and everything which is uh, built on top of like Clip-like models. So then the question becomes like, now, can you also add uh, actions in there, like tokens, like now, now actions look exactly like language. And it's just a question of predicting like uh, 11 tokens after, and you can do that for any robot. Um, and maybe another robot has like, that has like more degrees of freedom, like, let's say, imagine like a humanoid or something, and then you have a lot more um, variables. So each degree of freedom can be like one extra variable for the transformer model to predict. Um, and then it just becomes like, can you predict the XYZ sequence? Um, that's how I think uh, actions are going to be tokenized and converted into data for transformers. So at each step of inference, the kind of core language model, which is, you know, you're kind of projecting out in the future, there might just be literally one big model that takes everything in and, you know, it's one huge black box. But for now, we kind of have some auxiliary models that like do the vision part and kind of feed that into the language. And I looked at the, um, the Paul me paper. There's even like a couple different types of language of, of vision model, excuse me, that, you know, uh, object segmentation, you know, general scene description, depth mapping, whatever, like all these kind of different things come in together into the language model. Along with, of course, like, what are we trying to do here? You know, what did the, what did the human ask us to do? And then what is spit out the other end is 11 values, which say, and was it either or like, you're either going to do something with the arm or you're going to do something with the base. So RT1 is like that, but I, our next models are going to be whole body control. So, which means that you move both of them together. If you really think about how you do your control, you are not either moving your arm or your head separately, right? At any given point, you move them together. So um, yeah, that's going to be fixed. So there's kind of a couple, I'm understanding like a couple of different paradigms here or, or ways that this could work. One would be that the language model says like, okay, based on what I'm seeing and what I'm trying to accomplish, 
I want to move the base to position X and Y. Okay, cool. We got there. Now, next time I want to move the gripper to position X, Y, Z and, you know, have a certain angle and have a, a certain, you know, open close. How, how does the sort of issuing of that command relate to the cycle time? Because I would assume that like, you know, you can only accomplish so much before you're going to be kind of running the whole process again. Um, so that's like the action bound, right? The language model basically predicts a token. And the token is like a value between like zero to 256. But each of those numbers correspond to like a, a certain bound uh, between no action versus go forward or backward. The language model is predicting still within like a bounded space of action that you can go to or not. And uh, in RT1, uh, the inference time was 100 milliseconds. And then the full stack time was 300 milliseconds. So that's like three hertz control. Humans are a lot faster than that. And um, yeah, we, we know that we need to optimize it. But these are research robots, which is why the stack is slower. But production robots uh, would be like a lot faster than that. Um, and also, let's say, assume that once the language model says, go uh, go to XYZ position or whatever, and we are doing um, concurrent or non-blocking control. So what that means is that um, after the language model tells the robot to go move to that position, uh, the next cycle of inference does not wait uh, until after that action is executed to start the next step of inference. So there is a thinking cycle which is going, and then there is an executing cycle which is going. I mean, this is also like how you do it, right? Like you don't wait until, let's say, I don't know, you grab something to think about what is the next thing to do. So thinking and acting are uh, happening simultaneously, and it is also important uh, for for robots to be fast uh because like there are moving objects let's say if your kid throws your ball uh you need to be dynamic and if you are slow if your control is too slow if if you move like like that then you're not going to catch the ball um so which means that it imposes certain limitations on the latency of the whole system uh so one of the ways in which we tackle that is by using the token learner uh which is like really compressing uh the tokens uh, uh from uh from the pre-trained efficient net and so that the inference times are faster and that cuts the inference time like one third um and also in language models it's like everyone is excited about like really really big models but scale um comes with emergent probability properties and uh, scale comes with like large reasoning abilities but then that also means makes inference slower so they are sort of like competing objectives so we want fast control but we also want to fit as much information as much context as possible um and uh, definitely like in the future our hardware our inference hardware um all of that is going to be much faster and optimized for transformer inference um but right now there is still that competing objectives Okay, that's really helpful. And I, I think likely very clarifying for a lot of people. If I understand correctly, there too, like the command, I guess, right, the predicted command of go to XYZ, that's explicit enough, I gather, that it can be just sent directly to the robot control system for execution. But then with the latest paper with Paul Me, it sounds like there's a bit of a different architecture where it's starting to, instead of saying like, go directly to XYZ, it's giving like slightly higher level commands that are then received by 
and translated into actual action or motion by another model within the same system. So can you describe that version as well? And then maybe like the pros and cons, like why, uh, you know, is that just a strictly better approach or do they have, you know, trade-offs? Uh, yeah. So actually, uh, Palmy and RT1 work together. So uh, Palmy is like the updated SACAN, which is a converting high-level language into low-level language. So converting between like how to go get coffee and then planning that with like feedback from the system and everything. And then RT1 is doing the little things like pick up the coffee cup. So I think two models are uh, like optimizing both of them is synchronously is uh, suboptimal compared to having one model do both planning, language generation, and inference control. Um, and I think like that is the way that we will go uh, in robotics. Uh, we are not, uh, you'll see You'll see future papers from us which go in that direction. Yeah, so PAMI is more like SACAN level, like reasoning about the uh, environment, but also it is also doing like affordance. It is also doing like scene feedback um, and RT1 is doing the exact actions. PAMI, the successor to say can will take in everything that's going on, which includes my having told it to get a cup of coffee and its knowledge of its position and state and its, you know, visual input. And then it will translate that to a low level command that is like grab the cup. And then RT one takes that input in and translates that to XYZ coordinates for the gripper. What does sound nice about that architecture is you could have like RT two, three, four, five, and six for different kinds of robots, but does RT one, it already handles multiple different types of robots as well. Right. So is that just like a variable within the bigger thing? Like what kind of robot arm you're actually controlling? Is that just another token that's in the input? Or how does it kind of know which embodiment it is controlling at any given time? Uh, so it, it has another input. So when RT1 was jointly trained uh, with KUKA and uh, with uh, EDR, uh, it was told uh, where like the data came from uh, and the, the action spaces were also sort of uh, mapped together. Um, yeah, so one way that you could compose uh, like a one model on like multiple robots is like, using one token to determine like which robot you're inferencing on. So let's say, imagine like if you're running like a robot dog and then you have one token saying this is a robot dog, which means you predict like, I don't know, maybe 24 variables versus if it's like the everyday robot that we are doing and then just predict 11 tokens. That, that's one way where you can like still mix a lot of different data from a lot of different robots and then also have like transfer between them. Um, while um, allowing it to influence on a lot of different robots. One of the videos that I thought was most striking from was an example of where there's these sort of exogenous shocks to the robot's plan. Um, for example, there's one video where the robot is picking up a bag of chips out of a drawer, and then the human comes in and knocks the bag out of its hand and puts it back in the drawer. And so it's a demonstration of the fact that the language model, you know, especially as it's informed by the visual inputs loop, you know, obviously it's not having these conscious thoughts of like, Oh, somebody knocked this thing out of my hand, but it is realizing 
the bag is over there and, you know, I need to go back and get it to pick up my, you know, to, to accomplish my objective. That's a pretty striking video. There's one with pizza uh, being made as well and sauce being, you know, kind of smoothed around on the pizza and, the, you know, the person comes and moves the the pizza and the robot, you know, recognizes that and continues to to apply the pizza sauce appropriately. So I was like, boy, that's pretty awesome. And then I was also thinking, what is the limit of how much perturbation I would want a robot to sort of push through in the real world? You know, and I, I have a four-year-old kid and a two-year-old kid and another uh, new baby coming in, uh, let's see, 25 days. You know, it, it's definitely a very common occurrence in our house that I'm trying to do something. And then, you know, there's a there's a shock of, of, a, of a kid entering the scene and, you know, messing something up or whatever. How what, how are you guys thinking about sort of a, okay, this is sufficiently big of a shock, you know, that we did not, that the, that the model did not expect that maybe it's time to just stop, you know, like I, I should, I should not pursue this goal anymore because something is happening that like, you know, is out of distribution. I don't know what to do with it again. Yeah. So uh, these are like ethics questions, right? So it's like not a question of, can you do it, but should you do it? And it's also like very similar to like safety questions. Um, and here, um, our straightforward approach is to borrow from like AI safety, AI alignment research. Um, so one way, like we are running a lot of autonomous scale operation. So like where the robots run around and then they propose what tasks to plan uh, to practice and then uh, autonomous policies then try to attempt to practice those tasks. But now the question becomes like, imagine the robot is roaming around people's desks. It should not attempt to pick up their personal belongings or if uh, people are sitting in the Google micro kitchen, it should not come near them and then like try to disturb them or like propose any task that is harmful for them. So uh, like, like for example, one of the days um, there was the robot that we were planning and it detected that there was a phone in my hand because I was recording it and it was like, um, uh, take the phone and then pick up uh, and then put it on the table. Uh, but the phone was sitting in my hand as a human and I would not appreciate it if it just like grabbed the phone from my hand without any uh, consideration for like how humans behave, right? Like before you take my phone from my hand, firstly, you need to understand that the social norm is to not grab people's phones from their hands. Secondly, you would ask for these things. So there's a lot of like HRI components in there, uh, which is like how how can robots be like nice and polite even in social interactions? Um, and we have a group that is working on HRI research, which is like thinking about like um, how to make the robots polite, how to make them reason contextually about these things. Like for example, in this in this failure mode, the robot detected that detected a phone in the scene and proposed a task, but it did not detect that the relational uh, aspect of uh, the phone being in my hand and the fact that I was holding it. If we have better scene description, I think a language model would be able to reason that a phone, this phone is in the hand of a person. So then, you know, don't, um, don't do that. Um, and so currently our approach to safety now is asking a language model, like, should you do this or not? We also have like for tasks like collision and stuff, we have like, more harder bounds like it would not do tasks that actually have collisions even if the language model plans and everything it is still like bounded it it, it, it should not be uh, like 
dropping objects or like colliding into things. So there is a hard bounding uh, from a control perspective, which is just like, don't run into anything. Then there is the question of like asking a language model, is this a safe task to do? Is this a nice task to do? Or if not, can you explain to me why uh, this is something that you should not attempt to do. So some of the tasks is like our robots right now have only one hand. So uh, when it is given a task that requires two hands, then it should be like, I, I'm not able to do it because I, I don't have two hands. Or if it's asked to lift a heavy object that's above its payload, it will be like, it, this is unsafe for me to do because it's a heavy object. Or if you say like, pick up the thing with the hot coffee, it'll be like, this is a very hot object. Uh, like hot object that I should not be handling. Um, so maybe you do it. So like, so, um, and then, so now here we come into the realm of collaboration between a human and a robot where the robot is closing the loop in itself. Robot knows what it should do, what it shouldn't do, what it can do, what it can't do, and also how to be nice while doing these things. And now, so once it determines, once it can classify these things, now the question is like, you should still be able to get the coffee to the human, even if it's hot coffee. But if you are not able to handle that, if you think you're not safe enough to handle that, then you need to replan and reason about how to still get that task done. So one way could be you can uh, like chat with the robot. Uh, our robots have like a chat interface. You can tell the robot back, hey, uh, the human back, hey, look, um, the, the, I have the hot coffee in there. Can you come help me pick it up? Um, or so that is the realm of like collaboration and or like intervention, you know, like, so I think deploying robotics in the wild uh, is not going to be with fully autonomous policies, but with auto autonomous plus interventions. So like how self-driving cars are, right? They are good for handling aut autonomy can handle like 95, even 98% of cases, but those like those 2% of cases were like, or even 1%, if you run at like 10 hertz in front and you have 1% mistakes, you are making a mistake every 10 seconds. And that's like highly unsafe. So, but what the self-driving cars are good at are knowing where they're good at and where they are bad at. Um, and they can ask a human for help when let's say the map is doesn't make sense or like there's a person there saying, asking the cars to go around. Um, so similarly, I think that the way that uh, robots will be deployed is like they know their bounds of operation and they also uh, can ask a person for help when they are confused or when they don't, when they can't do something. And they also have like hard bounds around them, like common sense things, right? Like don't hit a child or like don't run into things. And even if a language model somehow plans like hit a child or whatever, then you still have like safety on robot, like control, which is not a machine learning model, which is deterministic control that says like don't run into objects. That sounds like for one thing, kind of another Herculean labor to collect all that data, because that's another level that doesn't really exist, right? Um, or maybe you're in the process of collecting it now, but there's not really a lot of examples, certainly out there on YouTube or whatever, of robots running into situations where they, you know, determine that like they can't do the task. So uh, definitely, I think that we will get a lot of transfer from a language model like all the work that people are doing for alignment and safety of language models and other now with like GPT-4 or multimodal mo models, like don't generate harmful 
uh, output. Don't ask it to do harmful things. So that's definitely going to feed directly into our research that's there. But we also need more information about the specific failure modes of our data of our problem. And once it is close to productization, so you know, like how Waymo or like self-driving companies have their simulators to test for safety related things. They also have like human in the loop, um, which is like constantly testing the hardware. So I think all of those things will come in. Uh, but robotics especially has like a particular imposition on safety which is that language models can be wrong on the internet right you ask chat gpt something it goes wrong no problem or it says something weird no problem but then if you make a bad plan if you like drop an object you break things you cost you cost money um and you cost you probably injure a person or uh, destroy an object, uh, which is so there is a higher penalty of a failure on uh, robotics models, um, which is going to be uh, which is going to be very important towards their safe deployment. I don't think that this is an impossible problem to solve. Look at self-driving cars. They're already making money in San Francisco. Um, so it's just a question of us doing it carefully with human in the loop and then um, rolling it out in phases. Yeah, initially everyone was like self-driving cars would never work because they can never solve 100% of the problems. They're always going to be long tail and whatever. But yeah, you can you don't have to solve the long tail. You can solve as much as you can and then you can uh, make humans solve the rest. So you're basically doing intervention. Assume that the robot already works, like start making money today and then keep solving the problem, then reduce the intervention rate. So then that that becomes your whole problem. I think bringing robots to people's houses will also be like deployed today with whatever your, like capability you have, and then use humans to fill the gap of your algorithms right now. And then as you go, as you make money, as you keep improving, uh, slowly phase it up. It's funny you mentioned the self-driving cars too. I just took a ride in my neighbor's Tesla that has the full self-driving enabled and i came away from that feeling like first of all just pure wow like it really does work amazingly well and also like nobody seems to be acknowledging it it's this odd uh you know as you said like people say it's never going to work like you can still go online today and find you know recent articles probably can find one from today that says like fsd is never going to work but i just wrote in one and it definitely is a lot farther along than some of the uh you know, the naysayers would suggest. So it sounds like robotics <laughs> from this conversation uh, is probably in a similar position. I wanted to talk a little bit more about kind of the hard bounds, because that also is something that seems, as you just kind of spoke about, much more important in the, the robotics uh, paradigm than language models or others. One article just for listeners that I really recommend, because I, I could go back to it repeatedly just to kind of meditate on like how I work as a human is this um, Scott Alexander book review of a book called Surfing Uncertainty. And we could put the link in the show notes, but basically he kind of talks about how the human like biological nervous system just has like a ton of layers and you've got like, you know, the prefrontal cortex layers are kind of the highest layers that deal with the highest level of abstraction. And then obviously, you know, radically oversimplifying but as you kind of go down the nervous system all the way out to the periphery, there's just like layer after layer. These are probably not discrete layers, but you know, to some extent there are discrete cells. So there is some amount of discreteness to it. Anyway, whatever. Um, it's, it's not meant to be too, too literal. 
But as you get out to kind of the periphery, you have just like very low level interpretation of what's happening. And, you know, you can do things like remove your hand from a hot stove before there's certainly any conscious thought of the hot stove. So all of that, you know, and I highly recommend that article, all of that to just kind of preface like, it seems like robots need something similar, right? Where they they need to sort of detect that like, I'm encountering resistance, you know, or like the thing that I'm grabbing is like deforming <laughs> in my grasp more than I, you know, expected it to or more than it seems like it should. And therefore, I need to kind of back off, right? I need to like slow down. I need to, you know, I don't necessarily want to wait for the next inference cycle to withdraw pressure or, you know, back off of a collision or whatever. So how is that working today? Is that like a non, is that more of like a classical system that's not AI driven? Or is that also, you know, something that the the models are ultimately going to handle in your view? Like, what's the future of that look like? So um, let's go back to the example of the touching the hard object, right? So there is like the uh, planning in our body, which like goes to the brain and the spinal cord and whatever, and then um, tells you that you should not touch the hard object. But then uh, when you touch a hard object and then you reflectively act, you are not going all the way to run the inference step. This is what I was previously talking about by various layers of safety. There is one layer, which is the language model telling you, should you do it or not? Don't touch hard objects, don't handle whatever. But there is also like low level control layer. Um, uh, RT1 also has its own like safety. It will not um, do like highly unsafe things because it doesn't have the data and it is like the data is cleaned and everything. But also on the robot, on the control level, uh, just like the uh, C++ code, there is also a way to determine like don't do collision uh, related stuff, like don't run into objects. And that's like, that's very easy to detect, right? Like, you know, uh, you know, you know the occupancy in space. Uh, don't deform the object. Like, don't uh, run into things. Uh, but also, more than just collision, there's various other types of feedback, right? Which is like tactile sensing. Um, which is like, like as you said, right? Like, if you try to pick up a, like a full bottle and. I don't know, like if it deforms a lot, then maybe don't do it. Or if it's like, if if it spills over, don't do it. So right now our robots don't have tactile feedback on them. So like with the gripper, so it, 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 it knows some, like it has some pressure feedback. So if it's like a very hard object and then you squeeze it, you won't be able to squeeze it. And that's reflected in the, like the max torque applied onto the thing. But then there's also like more softer feedback, like to like, cut like vegetables or like soft objects like tomatoes and stuff, you need more uh, finer feedback, um, which is not there yet. But then we can still do a lot. We can still deconstruct safety into various layers with uh, existing like just force feedback. So that, I think that's reassuring that there's like some, that it's not fully a black box, that there is this kind of C++ <laughs> safety layer that is like a hard override. And uh, zooming out just a little bit more, still and and just kind of kind of like returning to some of our you know very early discussion around how we'll interact with robots what kind of role you know they are going to play how fast do you ultimately think we will want robots to be as i watch the the videos you know it is notable that they run pretty slow today certainly like much slower than humans like the videos are typically shown at like either 4x speed or 10x speed i've seen both 
So they're, you know, they're pretty slow in today's world. Obviously, you'll want to speed them up. But I wonder if you have like a sense for what the optimal frequency is for a robot to be operating at in a human environment. There might be a maximum at a certain like human-like frequency that would be sort of accessible. You know, if we could run them at a thousand hertz, I'm not sure that we would even really want to. Frequency of inference is not the only variable for speed. So frequency is, think of frequency as how reactive you are. So even if you're running inference a lot, but each step you can only move a little bit, then uh, let's say to go to here, you're gonna, let's say, run like 10 inferences, but then you can also go to here in one inference, right? So there are two variables to control here. One is how reactive you are and your inference frequency. Third, but second is also like how much uh, movement you are allowed in each inference step. Time to complete a task is within 2x or 3x of what a human would take for that task. And then that is about optimizing both the machine learning on, on robot software and also optimizing for both reactiveness as well as speed. We didn't play around with speed a lot because it can be a little bit dangerous, right? We, you're trusting the inference a lot, but um, we like I think because these are research robots, we haven't really optimized um, all of these things a lot. Um, when they come into production, then that becomes a more important question. But I think it's it's fairly solvable still uh, with with existing machine learning models and existing robots to get at least like within two x of a human. Um, yeah, robots. You would be freaked out if a robot were as fast as you in doing things right and as good as you. I think it's fine to give them a little bit more time until they like, I don't know, ease into society and people are like, okay with them. Yeah, totally. I agree with that for sure. I have a, you know, the, the most advanced robot in my home right now is the Roomba and it's, um, you know, kind of stumbles its way and, you know, uh, crawls its way around the house. It's not, uh, not too smart and doesn't figure things out too quickly, but it kind of feels appropriate, you know, and like we run it overnight. So it's one of these things too, where it's like, it doesn't really matter if it takes it an hour or two hours or, you know, whatever, five minutes, like it wouldn't be much better for me if it was a five minute task, you know, for the robot instead of an hour, but honestly, it probably wouldn't be any better for me. So yeah, I, I do think you're right. But it is also interesting to hear that perspective that increasing the frequency of inference really just smooths the behavior as opposed to really changing the behavior. And then you have a separate decision to make around like, okay, per unit time, whatever that interval is, how much am I going to move in that unit time? So that's something you can kind of control independently, which is, that's helpful because I hadn't really conceived of it in that way. What are they like to work with? Like, do they break a lot? Do they need maintenance? Are they heavy? Like how, how robust are these robots that you are currently working with? So I've worked with space robots. Uh, like uh, we, when we were in grad school, we sent a little robot to the moon. Um, I have worked with like self-driving cars and I've worked with uh, everyday robots. Uh, and I think these are the most stable, at least at the fleet uh, scale uh, they have. And they're fairly robust, like the navigation stack and everything is fairly reliable. They don't break as much. They don't run into objects, like everything works. And I think it's because like Google's really good at engineering. And we also have like great ops folks who are like keeping everything like, like it's like uh oiling the machine right like and um yeah they, they they are fairly robust and fairly good robots uh so far i think they they don't they don't break easily 
um, and it's very convenient to like run experiments on them. We still have a long way to go with like solving smaller issues and stuff, but I think they are the best robots that I have worked with so far. And another thing is that like you you see industrial robots, right? They are they are also fairly robust, but they are very constrained environment. Like it's like fixed base, it's like doing picking or like it's like doing scanning. Uh, but these robots also move around. So compared to the complexity of the domain that they operate, I think their reliability is really good. Do you think that they are the right form factor for like ultimately, you know, use in homes? I think form factor is a very, very important question. And there's a lot of like debate among roboticists on like, what is the ideal form factor? Initially, a lot of robotics was like fixed base. So um, they they were just like, like these KUKA arms and stuff, they would just like do things from a fixed location. But this is not very general robotics, which is why we now have like arms moving around. But the arm is the most costliest part of these robots. So if they have like two arms, then uh, the robots is going to be almost twice as expensive and then the equation the economic equation would not work out um so there are like various trades so cost is one trade-off up until this point we were limited by the robot software um and so if if you cannot even do one hand task then it doesn't justify having multiple hands and legs and whatnot on the robot right but now we are seeing that we are limited the robot capabilities have increased to a point where we are actually limited by the uh, we are limited by the hardware so we we have cracked a paradigm where it's like throw data and then just learn it um so then the question is like how much data can you throw and then on which robot should you throw the most data? And I think that if you really think about it, if you really think about like the ideal generalization, like like a superhuman physical intelligence, it's probably going to look like humanoids, right? Because our world is designed for humans. Like your kitchen is designed for humans. A car has like a is designed for a six feet human. Um, and a cup is the uh, the dimensions of this, uh, like what fits in my hand. Um, a lot of the data on YouTube is from like a human egocentric perspective um, with like human hands operating. So if you look at it from a design of the world perspective, then humanoids are uh, the most optimal form factor. If you look at it from a data perspective, like NBA basketball agents playing, uh, they they look like humans. So then, and you probably need like a human-like form to play very good basketballs, right? Both from a data and a utility perspective, human humanoids, I, I think, are the ultimate form factor for robotics. But um, if you really think about it, stability is uh, if, is a very, very hard problem to solve. Um, and Boston Dynamics has like really, really complex robots, which all of them are leg robots. But stability is a, is a very hard problem to solve. And then that means that um, all of your problems become stability problems. While you're like picking things up, you're also worried about like falling. And if you do fall, you are a danger of breaking parts or injuring other people. So... I think that one of the reasons that uh, Boston Dynamics has like little stubs for their arms is because like they invested into legs too soon. And then now all their problems are stability problems. So initially it was one arm on fixed based robots, then one arm on mobile based robots. And we like now we have navigation and manipulation together. I think the next is like bimanual manipulation. A humanoid on wheels is basically two arms and a camera at human height, right? It's not like, it sounds so complex, but it's actually just, two arms and a camera um, on wheels. 
So I think that would be the um, form factor for a lot of like indoor and office applications. Like most homes nowadays have like, most offices have like elevators and stuff. And most for most robots, like if they're on the floor, they can do a lot of things. And then the next step would be like legged robots, which adds an additional level of complexity, right? Because um, imagine that you do build a superhuman intelligence and then it goes to deliver, but then it can't cross a little curb on the, in front of your door. So you need legs to like go upstairs or go uh, past cur- uh, curbs or even to do like outdoor robotics. Um, so humanoid on wheels would be the next version uh, with two arms. Um, then the, then would be like legs and also or uh, like fingers, like five fingers uh, would be uh, another upgrade uh, because a lot of things you can do with, uh, with just grippers, but then uh, fingers are highly complex. Like we have so many degrees of freedom in here and it's ha- highly complex to plan and stuff. But uh, ultimately a lot of the tasks would need more finer dexterous manipulation. As you're describing that, I have this kind of image in my mind that's like analogous to the human evolution, you know, where it starts with like the great ape or whatever, and then it gradually sort of becomes more, you know, to human over like six steps. You basically just describe the six steps that goes from one arm to, you know, the the ambulatory <laughs> robot. It's a pretty similar, you know, evolution, so to speak. That's why I'm so excited about robotics, because it's like we are inventing ourselves, right? It is in many ways a quest to understand us and our intelligence. And it's so hard to put down onto paper why, how we detect like a cup or how we are doing these things or how we are planning tasks. Like at least high level things you can like describe in language, but low level manipulation, low level uh, inferences, you really cannot. Like why your arm and leg are moving in a certain way, you cannot. But then building like you know how software engineers say the best way to learn something is to build it and i think robotics is basically our quest to understand ourselves and build more of ourselves uh, if you think about uh, gpt and uh, language models are doing a lot with respect to like scaling uh, intelligence right uh, and bringing down the cost of knowledge work like if you think about it industrial revolution has automated a lot of uh, mechanical labor that our lives are much easier and now with the intelligence revolution we are like automating a lot of knowledge work um, but then truck drivers in the united states make like 200k because no one wants to drive trucks um even like people that like sand boats apparently in san francisco makes like 95 dollars an hour um and which is like you know comparable to a software engineer um so as uh the as the availability of labor changes uh once like more knowledge work gets automated um physical work is going to be the most uh valuable like when my friends ask me like oh software engineers are getting automated artists are getting automated it's like the more of a paradox right the things that we thought were hard to do are actually easy to do for computers but the things that we find are easy to do are really hard uh, like we for us like composing these images and stable diffusion is like super hard and editing those things but then Computers apparently can do that, but something so easy as like going to my kitchen and make me a coffee or like take my dog for a walk that we take for granted and we think is so easy is like really, really hard for computers to do. So, but physical labor still uh, accounts for a large portion of our GDP and automating that has like a lot of economic opportunity. And I think eventually if, if we, if we think of like our species, like really going forward and capturing, uh, 
different planets or expanding ourselves, uh, then definitely solving both AGI in the digital world and AGI in the physical world is going to be very important. We had uh, Suhail from Playground, which is an image creation service that people are obsessed with. He, he has a young child as well. He said, you know, my maybe my kid, who knows, like maybe some of their best friends will be AIs. And then we also had Eugenia Koida from Replica, which is the like, you know, virtual friend app that, you know, is all digital today, you know, which people are already falling in love with. And that's become like a big challenge <laughs> for her because people are doing like, you know, erotic role play in the app. And she's like, you know, that I might have problems there in, in any number of ways. So they, they just kind of dialed that back and they had a bit of a backlash from users because people really care about that stuff as they become attached to it. Does it, is there anything that's like blocking in your mind, the sort of extension of, you know, when I think of this, I just think of like picking up the toys, like that's where as far as it goes typically in my imagination. But then, you know, when I think of Suhail and his kid, and I think of Eugenia and, and all her users, it's like, boy, are we going to have robots that are like playmates to our kids? Are we going to have robots that are like robot spouses? <laughs> we we are going to have them uh, like uh, in, our, in our lab, like uh, on days, like I'm like driving to work and then I, I have booked like two robots to like play with me the whole day. And then at the end of the day, uh, and you get close to these robots, right? Like you are like, uh, this meta or this one, they have the numbers at their end. Um, and, uh, and then you're also like, at the end of the day, I like cracked one robot's wrist because like I moved the uh, chair against it. And then you spend the whole day with it. And then you're like, okay, I had to like file a bug to take it to like, it's, um, like a hospital kind of service that they have where they fix the arm. But like, I felt like so bad that I broke the robot, but the robot would never understand that I'm actually sorry. And I, 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 I would not even, the robot never told me that it's okay. But a human, if I, if I would hurt a human by accident, they would tell me that I, I'm, I'm going to be, it's good. It's, it's okay. And I would feel better about it. Um, so that's one thing you eventually start anthropomorphizing uh, these robots, right? Because now they're also getting smarter with language. Like I can tell it, let's go on a walk. And then that language command is enough for me to like take it on a walk. Or like it, I can like teach it things, I can talk to it, or it says like, sorry for doing something. Or <laughs> I think sometimes we had like a little bit of like creepy programming on it where like uh, you're working in the kitchen and then it would like go up to you and be like, hey, are you my creator? And I'm like, dude, what? <laughs> I already feel, I already feel so like when I wrote my bio as mother of robots, uh, it's because one day uh, I was, I was like sitting in our robot classroom and I'm like, oh, is the robot better at doing these things or my dog more consistent at like uh, instruction following? Uh, and I'm like, oh, maybe we should like have a face off between them. And then I'm like, wait, but whoever fails, I'm going to feel so sad because both of them are like my babies. Uh, and I'm like training both of them. And, uh, and and that's when I'm like, they are actually an extension of us, right? If you, if you think about language models, they are basically condensing all of human history, all of our experiences and with multimodal models, like all the videos that we are collecting, all of our information about the world, all of our, even like more private thoughts, all of our fears and everything. So in some sense, they are a distillation of the human mind itself and not just one human mind, but a human mind across history and a human mind that is sort of also omnipresent in space and time. Um, and in, in when you put it on robots, it's like a human mind 
distilled, but also with physical capabilities, I can see that becoming really, really close to like being um, being human. And and maybe in the future, right? Once we have BCIs or whatever, like like I I really uh, believe that like the future of machines is also the future of us. Imagine that 1,000 years later, our bodies have exactly the same skills as we have today. That would be so disappointing. But I imagine that, but I think it's very possible, like with Neuralink and everything, we have BCIs, we have more powerful compute on us. Like eventually, like we merge with machines in a way that uh, they are like our progeny, which is also one reason why like I'm not that worried about like AI uh, taking over the world and how they, uh, like if, if, and this might sound a little bit defeatist or controversial, but if they are in fact smarter than us, uh, then I would want to be uh, like merged with them and have a common future with them than uh, to be like, like it, it would be like if monkeys said that humans should not be formed, right? If they are actually superhuman and so much better, then we should just become one with them. Love it. Fascinating. I assume that inference is going to kind of have to live on the edge for practical robot deployment. It seems like the latency of like going back and forth to the cloud is probably not viable if you want to run at like 10 Hertz or whatever. Um, so first of all, like, is that right? And then second, what about sort of on the edge fine tuning? Is there a paradigm that you see in the future where, you know, these robots will learn you know, the layout of my home to take like one very simple thing or like our preferences, you know, and start to have kind of a more customized, like, you know, the, the, the sort of final finishing training would be like done in deployment, you know, by kind of human feedback, but like from the customer, you know, the actual, you know, homeowner or business owner, or whatever the case may be. How do you think that shapes up long-term? So I used to believe that you needed to do onboard inference uh, for robots. Uh, but now we are seeing with like larger models like Kami and Pali that we are running on the robots. We are actually doing inference on a different server and then pinging back and forth. And so far, the latency is still good enough to like uh, go, go do that. And then you, I think it would be very hard to run like um, bigger models on robot. But then we, this is still new technology. So we will have to see how, how much, how they evolve. So maybe in the future, we have chips that can run like multi-billion models on robot, on device. That would be great. Or we have some way of like fixing the latency so that like it is, at least right now, it is still within operational limits. It's still good enough. With uh, language models, now you are seeing like more personalized AI, right? Where you can shape the character of AI to like even with prompt engineering or even with like fine tuning on top of like an existing language model, uh, you can um, customize it to your application. Like it has like various different um, advantages. One is like privacy. Um, which is that you don't want to give your data to some large company to put it in their training set, but you want to keep it in your house or in your office and then a little bit of fine tuning on top to personalize it. Um, or even like, um, uh, yeah, so uh, I definitely think uh, this will also be the way that once once we build like a uh, foundation model for robotics, uh, I think we we uh, these paradigms will start to happen. I definitely think it, 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 it has to be... Um, it has to be fine-tuned, right? Like, uh, imagine a robot that is in your house. It has to learn the preferences of you, your kids, your schedules, what, how you like certain tasks to be done. I noticed that there's 
I believe, more than 50 authors on the RT1 paper. And you've given us like a little bit of a, you know, a couple of different angles on like, oh, a hospital service for the robots. I'd never thought of that. Can you just kind of describe the team that has to come together to make all of this work? Firstly, I, I want to say that I have an incredible team at Google. They are like, uh, you know, one thing I'm realizing in life is that to do great things, you need to stand on the shoulders of giants and also work with like really smart people. And uh, my colleagues at Google are, they are like the smartest in the world. They are the best in the world at what they do. And they are still so humble and so curious. And as you can challenge them, you can ask them questions. And it, it's like really nice to show up to work and uh, be heard for your ideas and be respected and to work with like world-class people. And now the way that we uh, organize these large efforts so we have like uh the big papers that we do and we also have like splinter papers splinter papers are usually like smaller collaborations like intern projects and other things and big papers are like more foundational uh like um like upgrades in robotics technology that we publish as an entire group and the way that this works is like uh someone leads the effort uh there they are uh, uh but then everyone's included uh because uh, we like doing robotics takes a lot of people, right? Like uh, everyone who's in part of the ops and keeping the robots running, who's collecting the data for it, people who advise, people who actually implement things and like train and evaluation. Um, so um, the bigger papers are fairly inclusive. And then we try to like bring everyone on board to publish like the large um, upgrades in robotics technology. And for the smaller ones, it's usually like people involved and then they have different guidelines and stuff. And and. At Google, we always like uh, we always lean towards uh, being inclusive and uh, sort of including as many people as we can. The role of AI in your personal life right now: Are you using any particular products, services that you find exciting and would recommend to people? Um, so I use uh, Bard or even uh, ChatGPT sometimes to like ask it questions uh, to do uh, like. One of the things uh, to explain code, whenever I'm writing new code and like, especially with web programming and stuff, you are writing a lot of templated stuff. Uh, just asking uh, Bard and ChatGPT is like very useful for like tail queries and that like search engines are not that good at doing. Uh, that's one AI product. Uh, yeah, I also like the uh, summarization thing. So these days in meetings, we are like, if we have a large meeting that's like running over time, you just like take the whole thing, summarize it, and then uh, have these bullet points. But mostly I, I use uh, AI to like code and even like make like fun poems and stuff. And nowadays, like whenever uh, people ask me to like write emails, uh, I feel so lazy because most of, a lot of like being obligatorily nice in an email is just like filling it with text that you can just ask GPT to write it right. So sometimes like when I get a lot of emails where I I want to give like a short response, but then it would be impolite to be like curt. I would just uh, put it in there and then ask it to make like a bigger email and then just paste it in there. Secret safe with us. So let's imagine that a million people already have a Neuralink. And if you get one, it will allow you to type or create text as quickly as you can think. In other words, you have thought to text. Would you be interested in getting one? Absolutely. Yeah. Why would I be not? Well, you know, people are a little squeamish about holes in the skull. Uh, so that's one common objection that we've heard. But a million people have it, right? So 
it worked for them. I, in fact, I don't think that I would wait. I'm an early adopter. I don't think I would wait for a million people to get it before I get it myself. I think I'm with you, and that's part of why I asked the question. But it has. This has been actually one of our more polarizing questions. We get. A, I've had a couple responses just like yours. I'm like, I don't even need to wait for a million. And I've had others that are like, the last thing I'm going to stand for is something that can read my thoughts, you know, being physically implanted into my body. Um, and I do kind of get that. Although personally, I think I'm enough of an enthusiast that I would, uh, I would probably be with you <laughs> on the, uh, the earlier wave. I'm also big on like privacy. So like I don't do any private company products that like scan my retina or anything. But so if it's like running inference on chip on my brain, that's fine. But like if it's like sending my thoughts to a cloud to run inference, then I would not be okay with that. So yeah, there are like, I think some constraints on like the bounds of how the technology works. I, I don't know. Yeah, I'm very curious and very excited about it. What would you say are your biggest hopes for and also fears about the places that AI may take us? Um, so firstly, um, I think AI, uh, AGI has um, a lot of promise um, in like both automating knowledge work, automating, uh, bringing a lot of utility into our world. Like I think in in, in many tasks, uh, in many of uh, our, uh, so imagine that humanity is like pushing forward, right? Like uh, we are making inventions in science, we are making inventions in robotics, technology, a lot of these things, but we are bottlenecked on intelligence on many of these fronts. But imagine that there is like an AI scientist that can like propose hypotheses, run experiments, write papers. Um, they can invent new things. Uh, our world and our technology would like move so much faster. My hope for at least AI in this decade is hopefully we can train like an AI scientist um, at least on a few things, and we can automate a lot of different types of knowledge work, like software engineers could be much faster, doctors could be much better, um, and we, we are not then resource constrained on intelligence uh, in our world. That would be amazing, and even like even in physical intelligence. Um, but of course, AI is a very foundational technology, very impactful, and it comes with a bunch of... Uh, we need to do it correctly. One thing that I'm worried about is uh, increasing inequality. Like if AI is built uh, by large companies and then it like you, then you use less and less labor, it, it leads to a certain level of centralization. Even now with like uh, language models and stuff, there are very few people who can train like models that are like billions of parameters. And that creates, that increases the existing inequality already. And like a lot of people are left behind. I'm very concerned about that. And I think that the open source movement is going to probably try and equalize the field. So I'm very, I'm really cheering on like Stability AI and other companies uh, for leading that effort, uh, hugging face also. Um, the second thing uh, that I'm worried about is um, AI safety. So um, I'm fairly an accelerationist. I'm for, uh, we need to build this and we need to build this fast, but also safely. But there is a finite uh, probability that things could go wrong. And uh, so we need to be careful about, we, we also need to make sure that we solve alignment to a reasonable extent, that as we like phase out these uh, this technology into products, we are careful about how they are being used. Um, in fact, I think that productization of AI 
uh, is going to accelerate not just capabilities research, but also safety research, because ultimately only an aligned AI is a useful product. If it's not doing what people want it to do, but it's like gaslighting you to leave your wife or like threatening you, it's not a good product, right? So um, I think it's great that like Sydney Bing went first and then told people what a bad chatbot could be, because that gives the opportunity that made everyone think about how important it is to build a really good chatbot and it presents an opportunity to do this right. And I'm very excited for Google to uh, take on uh, that challenge and uh, fulfill and meet people's expectations. I think we are approaching the development of AI in also a responsible fashion. We want to do this well in addition uh, to uh, being one of the first uh, in the markets. Yeah, uh, so I think safety is one concern. And I think productization and acceleration of AI into products will also accelerate safety research. Uh, the third thing I'm worried about is uh, bias in AI. So in addition to existential risk type of safety, it's also like um, I'm I'm a person of color, I'm bisexual, I'm a female, so I'm a minority in various ways. And I can I, I know that like uh, language models and other things have like biases with these models. Uh, for example, if you say go to Kirtana, it would not understand Stand. But uh, if you say go to David, it will go to uh, because it's like uh, because like Western names are or male names uh, are more represented in the data set. Um, so yeah, so I'm I'm concerned about like uh, AI ethics and AI bias. Uh, I think it's important problem to solve in order to like bring the benefits of AI to everyone and not just like uh, a dominant majority of population and AI is making everything data driven and data is highly uh, like it's like a mismatch we, like we have different distributions for different distribution of people Kirthana Gopalakrishnan thank you for being part of the cognitive revolution thank you for uh, inviting me I had a lot of fun talking about these uh, topics and and great questions as well I'm really looking forward to it. It was a very technical podcast, more so than any podcast that uh, I've seen. Uh, so, so, uh, so thank you for that. And, uh, and I hope that your audience will enjoy. Thank you. And I am sure that they will. Omniki uses generative AI to enable you to launch hundreds of thousands of ad iterations that actually work, customized across all platforms with a click of a button. I believe in Omniki so much that I invested in it, and I recommend you use it too. Use Cogrev to get a 10% discount. Yeah,